0: The quick hello where this is episode 23 of oscar podcast we took a week off because we're just quite not not quite sure how often we're going to do these things or if you know if, if listeners are are engaged in what we're doing um or not but we might take a week off here and there anyway i'm here with craig kennedy from LivingInCinema.com and ryan adams and me sasha stone from AwardsDaily.com. And that's the intro. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hello, hello.
0: We had some computer problems before with Echoing, and we all had to reboot our computers. And in the meantime, I'm trying to futz with this code that's trying to redesign this website, and it's been driving me crazy all day. And so I'm a, I was a tad distracted, which is why it took me so long to call you guys back.
2: It's all right. We're all distracted tonight. Are we? I am a little bit. I feel kind of discombobulated.
0: Oh no, how come?
2: I don't know, just a lot of things on my mind. Not you know not podcast material, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe
1: maybe a different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not podcast
0: material. Oh, Oh dear. Um well We were going to decide to talk about 1972. Actually, it's the Oscar year, 1973, of movies that were released in 1972, right? Mm -hmm. And that fabulous year happened to be The the Godfather um, versus, really, it was The Godfather and um, Cabaret. Uh, and, And in its own weird way, Cabaret was sort of the life of pie of the year, and... Um, Godfather was. I'm gonna not gonna choke when I say it. Should I even say it?
2: <laughs> I wouldn't say it. No, don't say it. I know where you're
1: going. and Don't say that. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't know where you're going. Do I want to know?
0: Um. Well. Uh. Uh. Or, uh yeah. Godfather was the Argo of the year because. Um, it. Well, best it wasn't was really winning
2: best director.
0: There was no, there is no comparison to this last year. It is completely an anomaly. It was a one-off. There's no Oscar you, you can compare it to really, but in a way, because the, the Godfather led the nominations like Lincoln did. It had 11. Mm. Um, actually, Lincoln had 12. It had 11 like Life, Life of Pi. Um, it didn't have such a low number as Argo, which is what makes Argo an unusual Oscar win. Uh, unprecedented, actually. Um to have that low of nominations and have no director nominations. It's never happened before. So nonetheless, there were similarities, and one of those was that um, Cabaret cleaned up. <laughs> it totally it, won. It
1: won like eight out of ten awards. Yeah, it's, right. it mm-hmm. holds
0: the record now for the most Oscars won for a movie that didn't win Best Picture. And um, by the time in Damien Bona and Mason Wiley's book, Inside Oscar, they say that when they got to the – by the time he couple of lost director, they were pretty much convinced that there was no way Godfather was going to win. And Clint Eastwood came out and made some snide comment about Sasheen Little Feather, and announced it was Godfather. And it won only three Oscars, with eleven heading in. And it did not win um, Best Picture. I mean, Best Director. And the although it did win, just like Argo, screenplay. The interesting thing about it was that. Um, Godfather probably goes down in history as the greatest best picture to ever win the Oscar. I would say it's got to be up there. It's, if mm-hmm. it's not number one, it's it's in the top three.
2: Because it's for one thing, it's one of the few best picture uh, winners that that ever makes um, like the Sight and Sound um, lists and other other surveys of film history. You know, critics' um, uh, appraisals. It, it's always near the top of those lists too. Mm. And the American Film Institute, the um, 100 Greatest Films, and all those lists. The Godfather is always out there, you know. Whereas other Best Picture uh, winners sometimes don't show up at all. Right.
0: So that's what we're going to talk about this year, this that Oscar year, and and we're also going to try to talk a little bit about, um, you know, unequivocal Oscar winners, movies that we think are you know, just ones you can't argue with because they're so, um, they're just so good, you know, and there are a few of them. Um, maybe, we, I could pick probably 20 that I think are, are just exceptional winners.
1: I started out with a list of 20 and it took me a while to narrow it down to 10. Wow. Um, although, there's some cases where a movie may not, it might might not have even been my pick that year, but it's still great, if that makes any sense. But I guess we can cover that when we get to that subject. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I, I found the same thing when I was looking at the list of nominees and, and the movies that won. Sometimes some of my favorite movies uh, didn't win, but, I, I, but the movie that did win that year is also a favorite movie of mine. So I had like two favorites that year. Mm. And so I'm happy with the be, with Best Picture winner, uh, even though there were some that, that didn't win that I that I liked just as well.
0: Yeah. Uh Well, as far as The Godfather goes, I find it incredibly um, difficult to choose between the two of them. Um,
2: Between The Godfather and Cabaret? Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I agree. I think that The Godfather is, you know, not only just in terms of its, you know, all the elements of filmmaking, the writing, the directing, the acting, everything about it. It's also just so woven into the fabric of our country and it's just it is a film school unto itself cabaret is more like life of pie it's sort of life-changing it's vivid exciting cinema you know and it's um but it's definitely you, not for everybody but the academy certainly loved it
2: and you could really see the director's touch in cabaret i think more than you could in 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 uh in the godfather because coppola's style is necessary it's a it's an invisible style it, he doesn't impose himself too strongly on his material the way that some directors do, and you don't really see the flourishes in in any of his films. I don't think that you do in in a movie like uh, Cabaret,
1: right? In The Godfather, I think he added a lot to it, but it was but it's it's subtle. It's not it's not flashy and showing off. There's a lot of little subtle details that he injected into the story that were sort of. Um, Related to his experiences growing up as an Italian-American and not necessarily anything related to the mafia, but mm. just the Italian-American experience, like little, little moments, like a little kid dancing on somebody's feet at the wedding or little things like that. But those, those are not things that, that uh, grab your attention. They sort of build up in the detail if you think about them afterwards. I think that's one of
2: the reasons I think that that when he told when Robert Evans first approached him about directing, he said, I will do it if I but you have to understand right up front. I'm going to make this about American capitalism and about American families more than it will be about the the mafia and 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 gangsters. And he told him that right up front. I mean, it's on record that he said
1: that it's going to be about family and it's going to be about capitalism. Which probably explains why he was kind of under the gun the entire time. He was – every day he would get up worried that he was going to be fired that day off the picture even though it was a really low-budgeted picture. And at the time that they started it, the novel wasn't the big deal that it finally became. I think the studio after hiring him, thinking that they could push him around because he was just this relatively young guy – once they realized what they had on their hands, they started to get a little nervous about it. But I think history has shown that, that Coppola was right. Yeah. It's
2: amazing that he was able to keep, keep so much control and exert a power against um, such strong forces at Paramount as, as, as someone like Robert Evans. They wanted him. <laughs> they didn't like anybody that he cast. They didn't like uh, Pacino. They didn't like uh, Brando.
1: Yeah, yeah the, they, other they had actors. to fight the uh, studio head to get Brando. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is crazy.
0: And at the time brando 's career was kind of on the skids. if you can believe that I mean he um, you know he he, he didn 't have he was known at that time for being someone who charged a lot of money and didn 't deliver and was laid on the set and caused shenanigans and People pretty much thought had written him off and um, When Godfather came out, of course, they all fawned all over his performance and he was back on top until of course he sent Sasha and Little Littlefeather up to <laughs> accept his Oscar. <laughs> And kind of horrified the – not just the academy, that the president of the academy um, shamed him for it and said that, you know, why didn't he just be a man and, you know, come down himself? Why did he make her have to go up there? And Michael Caine said he should give half of his $2 million (laughs) to the Indian people. And then Rona Barrett, actually, the blogger of the time probably was um, – you know, dug into Sashi and Little Feather's background and, and uh, discovered that she just was actually an actress hired to, to play the role.
2: <laughs> oh, no kidding. Wow. She was like a gossip columnist, wasn't she, Rona Barrett?
0: I know. I yeah. thought so, too. But it turned out that she kind of did this weird investigative reporting on that particular story. Oh, wow. And she said she took out an ad in Variety that said something like, um, this is the end of Oscar as we know it after, you know, Marlon Brando did that. Um, I think it's and, great. And yet, here we are. And yet,
2: <laughs> well, it was a shakeup. The so things did definitely change. There was there was like be- before the seventies and after the seventies. You can oh. you can really divide the Oscars and what they represented uh, as before and after the Godfather, probably.
0: Absolutely. That I would say that you could divide the what I what I find my weird sort of recent epiphany about the Academy, and and a lot of people might say it's a duh thing, but um, I, I really think that. They're not only are they ruled by actors, but they're, they're they fall for movies that are about that are led by and and you know driven by the performances and and less so what the film critics tend to be drawn to are, are directorial um, forces. You know, great directors making movies, visionaries, writers, people like Charlie Kaufman and the Academy. Not so much. They're more into even the like sound guys and the tech guys. I mean, there's this kind of, you know, I guess it's just a halo effect around stars and actors and even all the crew. And and they just sort of all flutter around the, the heartbeat of Hollywood, which are the stars. And so the 70s was really the only decade that I can tell where the director led the way. And part of that, what I've come to realize is that critics were so strong in the seventies more so than they even are now. Now that's just, everything's watered down. There is no real strong consensus, critical voice because not only are there like three or four or five times as many critics, but critics aren't kind of grown the same way they used to be. They're not as well respected. People don't hang on their every word because you just turn the corner and there's another blogger who's going to say the opposite. And people you know, who just have started their own websites get, like us, get their names on, on blurbs. And so, you know, critics have lost a lot of their influence. And, and we learned after the social network, it was really, that was it. That was it. You know, critics no longer had sway over the Academy. And that was a really good example of a director's movie, social network, and an actor's movie, The King's Speech. And, you know, you just can't win Best Picture if you don't have that. You know, if you look at The Godfather and Cabaret, are two examples of films that did both. Um, And they would be hard to choose if you were going for the whole actor y thing. But, you know, Dances with Wolves versus Goodfellas, you know, that's director movie versus actor movie. You know, anyway, that's my weird
2: theory. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you've mentioned the thing about the critics before and from it. But I think this is the first time that you've ever that I've ever realized that you meant that the critics were not only more. They were stronger in the 70s, but they were better. They were better oh, critics. Yeah. than, And they weren't their voices weren't so diluted and they didn't seem so conscious and so uh, worried about what people who read them were going to think. It seems like critics now really uh Maybe because of the Internet um, and the feedback that they get, they want they, they want they play to their audience. Critics mm-hmm. play to an audience more than critics used to, I think. I mean, you know, looking back at the 60s and 70s, there were critics like Saras and Kale, yeah. John Simon and and uh, Kaufman for The New Republic and Penelope Goliath also for The New Yorker. Their their reviews were collected in books it's hard to think hard to imagine critics nowadays having book collections of their reviews you just don't see that except for ebert no no critics have that done because yeah. people
1: their the reviews aren't literature
0: even the ones there were, there were lame
1: critics back then too but there were fewer overall so each individual critic had each individual critical voice had, had was louder and, and more powerful now mm-hmm. there's just there's just so many that that it's it's really hard to, to to get above the fray, kind of. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, there were some really lame critics, especially in the 50s and early 60s, and and the the newspaper critics were really bad, I think. Yeah, before
1: film criticism was even taken seriously as a thing. Right. Uh
0: Yeah, and even really, I think, truly exceptional writers like A.O. Scott and and Manila Dargis and, you know, Scott Foundas and Andrew O'Hare, those kind of guys and, you know, women... I don't, can't even imagine a book of film criticism by them.
2: You know? No, I can't no.
1: either.
0: Not a single one would sell because for mm-hmm. every one of them, there's you know hundreds more. So I do think it's the kind of the death of film. I also think that the Academy is not any more required to listen to the critics. Like there's no pressure because back then in the 70s, when when Coppola made The Godfather and and it got such great reviews, I think that they they talked about him and um, uh, Bogdanovich and Friedkin as being the new future of American cinema. I mean, imagine that these three incredible
2: directors. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that. You said that you mentioned on the last podcast, and I was curious about about those three names together: Coppola and Bogdanovich and Friedkin. And this connects to the the uh, Godfather and Paramount because Frank Yablons was. Uh, CEO of Paramount at that time. And he actually formed a, a segment, a, dif- a different department within Paramount called the Director's Company. He formed this this uh, special unit of Paramount, and the three directors he chose to represent that, that, that department were Friedkin, Boganovich, and Coppola.
0: That's right, yeah. In, in this book, it's, it's talked about as being... Um... Uh, their own company,
2: but yeah, I guess it, it, it was. It was called the Director's Company, and, and it, it was Frank LeBond's creation. And he thought that that way he could get these auteurs, he could get these auteurs, um, and get their their creativity. But at the same time, he could have them under the studio's thumb because they would be right there on the lot, and they would have offices there on the lot. And so he thought he would be able to control them. But it turns out that the films that they gave him were not what he wanted, not what he expected at all. Mm-hmm. I think think they only really produced three films under that banner, under the banner of the director's company, and it was uh, The Last Picture Show, which was good, which did turn out the way he wanted, and then there was Daisy Miller and, uh, uh, what else? I guess Paper Moon and The Conversation. Mm. And, and, you know, The Conversation is exactly the opposite of what he wanted. You know, The Conversation was an art film, and that's not what he expected that he would get from Coppola at all.
0: But, you know, that was really coming out of the, you know, the, it was kind of coming into the greatest era because not only was there, you know, let's say, let's just stipulate the greatest era for, you know, middle-class white people. (laughs) because That's Mm -hmm. what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. I don't think it was a particularly great era for black Americans, you know, um, or American Indians, for instance, but You know, for white Americans in the late 60s, that was it. You know, your thing was to to kind of come out and be aware and be smart. You know, being smart um, meant something back then. I mean, why do you think Woody Allen's films were so so much about, like, the intellectual? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, everything that Woody Allen made fun of kind of rules the day now. You know, Um, reality shows and Kim Kardashian and gossip sites and, you know, silliness, celebrity worship. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that that cuts the kind of thing that wouldn't necessarily be as popular back then because people kind of, I think making sweeping generalizations, I know, but in terms of the industry and the men who are now grandpas basically in the academy back then, those were their salad days. You know, those were their days when they were jazzed about the new, you know, Pauline Kale talks about how, when she saw cabaret, um, it was time to totally put away any musical that had someone singing on a hillside or you know <laughs> doing a dance. <laughs>
2: Absolutely like, right. Yeah, it was so it,
0: revolutionary at the time. Can you imagine Cabaret? That movie that got
2: not having seen any other. When 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 your only experience of movies would have been like Oklahoma and South Pacific and and Sound of Music and My Fair Lady. Yeah, for Cabaret to come along, it must have blown people underwear off. Yeah,
0: no. her quote is, "An exquisitely sculpted." Um, Well, yeah, she was writing in the Los Angeles Times. How funny. Um, Mm -hmm. No, the Los Angeles Times called the film an exquisitely sculpted milestone in the history of the film musical. Pauline Kael predicted after Cabaret, it should be a while before performers once again climb hills singing or a chorus breaks into song on a hayride.
2: (laughs) 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 She was right. It was quite a while.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it really... um, What's interesting about it is that the godfather was really kind of the lincoln of its time in a way because people were so excited about cabaret and and everybody kind of felt in the academy like okay we got to give it to the godfather you know that that's really what this according to this book sort of what the sentiment was within that group and they definitely chafed against that they definitely didn't want to do that i think which is why it didn't win as many oscars as it probably should have um it was, it kind of felt probably Bob Evans, you know, old Hollywood and cabaret was so new. You,
2: you know? know, I don't know that Bob Evans was really old Hollywood and he was, a, he was an absolute newcomer then he he's old. He seems to us old Hollywood now, yeah. but Bob Evans, I mean, Bob Evans, uh, Robert Evans, let's call him Bob Evans. I think of the restaurant, <laughs> Wait, <laughs> a, who's Bob Evans? A, the Bob Evans restaurant,
1: oh, what's that? but
2: yeah. It, anyway, Robert Evans. I think he was he had he was he had been an actor. All he had done up until up until before Love Story was he was a like a B a, an actor in B movies. Right. He happened to to be a buddy with uh, the guy who uh, the the head of Gulf Western that owned Paramount, the conglomerate that owned Paramount, and so um, that guy I can't think of his name offhand. Bluthorn, I think Bluthorn, um, made made Robert Evans um, head of Paramount al- alongside Frankie Blondes. And, but he really didn't have any m- much experience before Love Story, and he wouldn't have even had the clout that he had and, except for Love Story. And Rosemary's to
0: Baby, though. He did Rosemary's Baby, too. Yeah, right, Baby right, right.
2: Rosemary's Baby. He was really good at spotting those literary properties that were going to be hot, uh, Rosemary's Baby and Love Story and The Godfather, yeah. three huge bestsellers of the time.
0: Because The Godfather was set to be um, Bob... Robert Evans' gangster movie. It was just going to be, you know, an old gangster movie. And and definitely, as Craig was saying, Coppola came along and said, no, I want more money. This is going to be the gone with the wind of the mob.
1: he Mm -hmm. wanted to do it, period, too. Robert Evans wanted to do it in modern times. Oh, God. Coppola insisted (laughs) on doing it, period. Can
2: you imagine updating it to the 1970s? How awful that would have been. No. The 1970s, no. it would have been <laughs> terrible. But, and, and you know, the, the Godfather, the novel itself, is is certainly not great literature by any stretch of the imagination. It was really a pulp novel. It was an airport read. It was an airport wow. book. You know, it was junky. It's a junky novel. I and mean, a couple of knew that. And most of the other directors that they approached to direct it, including Friedkin and, and um, like, who, who are some of the other names that they approached? You probably know Craig.
1: I can't the, remember but yeah.
2: Yeah, but there were some really high uh, high class directors that they approached and nobody wanted to touch it because they first of all they thought it was junky the material and they also knew that it was going to be really touchy because of they there was already uh uproar about uh, the mafia and Cosa Nostra and they they eventually the Italian American community uh, were able to negotiate that they weren't even able to use the words mafia and Costa Nostra in the movie. Oh they, they just called them the five families. They had to. Yeah. Wow.
0: No kidding. I, I know yeah. that they, they wanted um, a bunch of different actors like Ernest Borgnine for the Marlon Brando part. Well,
2: I know, you know, who else wanted that, who else was really interested in the property was Burt Lancaster. He was, he was, uh, he wanted to buy, he wanted to get the rights to the novel because he wanted to be the godfather.
0: Wow. And you know Marlon Brando was only forty-seven, by the way, when he made that.
2: Yeah, that he had not, and, and you know when they were, were talking about then, when uh, when they saw the success of the Godfather, and they talked about then the sequel, they thought, well, it'll be perfect because um, Marlon Brando can play the younger Godfather really well because he is actually younger. Mm-hmm. It won't be any trouble for him to play the Godfather in his thirties and forties because he's actually in his forties. But um, Brando wanted too much money for the, to do the sequel, and they decided to go another direction with it.
0: No kidding! I didn't yeah. know that. Wow! And it yeah, didn't they make they a had to rewrite
2: it completely when the, when Brando decided that he wanted uh, not only did he want two million dollars, I think, but he wanted such a huge percentage of the of the uh, of the gross that they said we can't make that deal with you.
0: Wow! Well, he made a shitload of money off the first Godfather because mm-hmm. that's what he yeah. did do. He signed up yeah. for the um. The the other movies that The Godfather was up against, other than Cabaret, which really should have won Best Picture when you look at it, it's it's um, they loved it so much, yet they couldn't bring themselves to give it Best Picture. I don't know why. Uh, it'll always plague me why Life of Pi didn't win over Argo. You know, Lincoln wasn't close. It was only got two Oscar wins, but Life of Pi had the most Oscar wins, and uh, and the only reason it didn't win was because of the actors. I think because the actors couldn't connect to a movie that wasn't a, didn't celebrate their their stardom, you know. And and when it was *Slumdog Millionaire*, and that guy was and Dev Patel was not well known, or the artist, and it was Jean Dujardin, those guys were out there, you know. They were everywhere. They were totally doing the dance. Um, but but Suraj Sharma couldn't do it because he was in school. So he never really got to do that thing where he got to be myth-made. Myth and, I, and I feel mm-hmm. like with Cabaret and The Godfather, you know, there isn't that same excuse because there were really great actors in Cabaret.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, those, those performances are incredible.
0: Yeah. Jo- I mean, uh, Joel mm-hmm. Grey and Eliza Minnelli both won mm-hmm. for Cabaret and the director, and it didn't win Best Picture. Is that insane or what?
1: Yeah, it's, it's weird to think that Cabaret got snubbed because you see The Godfather and you think, well, of course it's The Godfather because it's one of the greatest movies ever made. But damn, Cabaret was a great movie. And, mm. and obviously the Academy up to a certain point was completely behind it. But when it comes to handing out the big one, they, they gave it to Argo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's really an- <laughs> it's annoying because, look, here, here's what Cabaret won. Best actor in a supporting role, best actress, best art direction, cinematography, director, editing. Score, sound, and it lost best picture and best screenplay. (laughs) It's like, Mm. I mean, it's confounding. And and the only reason it's like, for instance, if that year was happening this year, can you imagine how many people would have been predicting Cabaret to win? I mean, it would have been a tough call because everybody. Oh
2: yeah, because think of even how many people were this year were predicting Les Mis to win. So compare Les Mis to Cabaret. And and Cabaret,
0: (laughs) it also won the Eddie. You know, the big old yeah. Eddie and the mm-hmm. Golden Globe. Um, you know, it, it was weird because, you know, The Godfather is, is absolutely one of, to me, one of the unequivocal Oscar winners. It might even be number one. Um, and it did. It also won the Globe, by the way, along with Cabaret. So they were really neck and neck in that.
2: As far I, as cinematography and editing and the, the technical aspects of Cabaret, it's almost on a level of Citizen Kane. You know, as far as the, as groundbreaking as it was, the things that they that that Bob Fosse did with Cabaret that had never been done before it was almost such a leap forward that it can almost be compared to 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 Kane. I think.
0: Yeah, I find it frustrating. Like to me, it's it's. I know it's maybe it's my own OCD, but Best Picture, Best Director should go together. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they split those because they liked them both, and you know, um, there were equally great movies. Um, mm-hmm.
1: But I'm kind of with you, though. If a movie is the best movie of the year, you have to give credit for that to the director. That's just the way it goes.
0: Mm-hmm. I think so.
1: And vice and I versa. Just, and
2: I just have to think, I just have to think, like I always say, I know people are tired of me saying it, but I really have to think that, that probably the Fosse and Coppola were within a handful of votes of each other. And probably Cabaret and Godfather were probably within a handful of votes of either one of them winning also. That it had to, they had to be almost neck and neck.
0: But enough. For people director said, and for picture. I think the same happened this year. Enough people said, I like I like both the movies, so I'll give Fosse for director. And the other thing about Bob Fosse, by the way, is he was um he was kind of being celebrated at that time in a way that, that Coppola never was. Coppola's like the directors like Spielberg and people, you know, the nerds. He's um Bob Fosse is not a nerd. You know he's incredibly charismatic, and you know all you have to do is watch all that jazz to know what Bob Fosse is. And you know he definitely had a lot of support from the actor, from the industry, from the people who've worked with him and who mm-hmm. knew him. And and he, you know, he could play the room in a way that that Coppola couldn't. So they probably yeah. figured, I like him, but Godfather's the best movie, so I'll vote for Godfather.
2: It was interesting. I was just looking at, at uh, Fosse's uh, filmography. The movie, the only movie he had done previously, the only feature film he had done previously was Sweet Charity, which was pretty much, in my recollection, that I've heard that it's like it was a disaster. Sweet Charity was a was another musical that maybe looks good in retrospect, but at the time it was a total failure box office wise.
1: Yeah, his reputation had been made on Broadway, though, right?
2: Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. I think so. He, and that way, he was a little bit like Sam Mendes, mm-hmm. which is unusual. Which is, uh, I mean, it's uh, not unusual, but it's. Cool because Mendes uh, uh, did his own version of cabaret. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah, that's how. That's how. That's what Sam Mendy was, was famous for. He staged cabaret at, in Studio Fifty Four, the, des- the, the deserted, desolate, decrepit Studio Fifty Four. He turned it into cabaret, and the the, the, the the action spilled off the stage into the audience. The audience was seated at cabaret tables in front of the stage. That's in Studio wow. 54. Bob, the other thing that, is, is
0: Bob Fosse was um, that same year he was having his biggest Broadway hit ever with Pippin, biggest Broadway hit ever with Pippin, and mm-hmm. was conquering television with the musical special Liza with a Z. So I think he yeah. like Ben Affleck his way in a way. Like he won everything. He won. I think he won that year a Globe, a Tony, and an Oscar all in one
2: year. Mm, he was a, he was a big name, and whereas Coppola was not a big name at all. Coppola no. was not not he was a nobody. Nobody knew who he was. Right, but they liked it
1: the Oscar the previous year because of Patton. But I think mm-hmm. that's that's small potatoes compared yeah, to like, yeah. So, I don't think that was. I don't playing in. And-
2: Right. it didn't give him the name recognition nationwide, I don't think. Uh, Maybe industry was beginning to take notice of him, but I don't think people across the country knew who he was yet.
1: It it seems like people didn't realize, even though it did win Best Picture, it seems like it was almost a begrudging choice and that people didn't quite realize at the time what a great movie it really was and that it's only been in retrospect looking back that we sort of see how great it is. Mm.
2: One thing we can't probably overlook, or we shouldn't overlook, in, 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 in thinking about why it did win Best Picture, is the box office, because right. it it, de, it destroyed box office records. Nothing had ever made the money that Godfather made, yeah. at, uh, and until then.
0: Let me read you from the book, from the good book, mm-hmm. uh, our Bible, our Oscar Bible, which right. we read every night before we go to bed, before our <laughs> prayers. Uh, Filming began in March 1971, and James Caan remembered, Jesus, at first everybody was so uptight. Francis was a wreck, and Pacino looked like he was going to die. But I gotta have fun. So Bobby Duvall and I started cutting up, and then Brando joined in. It got to a point where Brando and I couldn't look each other in the eye. We would just laugh. Paramount was laughing over Brando, too. Not only did the actor refrain from tantrums, but he was having such a good time mooning people on the set that he worked an extra week without pay. Promises to be the Gone with the Wind of gangster movies heralded Newsweek when The Godfather opened and and time piped in that it has a dynamic sweep of Italian-American Gone with the Wind. Hollywood has finally produced a money tree that won't stop growing, wrote Wayne Warga of the Los Angeles Times. And before long, Godfather passed Gone with the Wind for the number one position of all-time box office list. The film also invaded American vernacular. Make Him an Offer He Can't Refuse was soon in the repertoire of Madison Avenue copywriters and Borscht Belt comedians. With his percentage of the profits, Marlon Brando got a whole lot of money. But on top of that, he got back his respectability. Newsweek oozed. There is no longer any need to talk tragically of Marlon Brando's career. His stormy two-decade odyssey through films, Good and Bad... But rarely big enough to house his prodigious talents has ended in triumph. At forty-seven, the king has returned to reclaim his throne.
2: Absolutely, and even though, like you said, it maybe had been was a short comeback, it was a spectacular comeback because the same year that he did *The Godfather*, he did *The Last Tango in Paris*, Mm. and and that was groundbreaking in its own way too. I mean, I can't remember. Uh, Pauline Kills quotes exactly her, to quote her verbatim, but she said it was uh, movies would never be the same after the after Last Tango.
0: Right. So many um, groundbreaking movies back then, though, that, that movies mm-hmm. would never be the same after. Never be the same after The Exorcist. Never be the same after The French Connection. Never be the mm-hmm. same after Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, never be the same after Star Wars. Um, you know, it's just the 70s were really...
2: Uh, Movies took chances then, and audience were willing to 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 explore those chances. I mean, people might go. People who who went to see Last Tango in Paris might have regretted it and might have said, "I'll never see another movie like that again." But they wanted to see what it was all about. They wanted to see it at least once because that's what everybody was talking about. I can't imagine when it showed across America that very many people in Kansas were too impressed with Last Tango. But they went to see it anyway. It was it did a huge box office that year too. Right. It was one of the is in the top ten box office. The movies of 1972. Well, you know what else I found out about 1972? Sorry to just keep rambling, but one thing that you don't hear very much about: uh, three of the movies that were in, the, in the, the the top box office movies of 1972 were X-rated movies. Fritz the Cat, <laughs> Fritz the Cat was an X-rated cartoon. Behind the Green Door, Marilyn Chambers oh. or somebody like that, and Deep Throat. Wow. Those movies were playing in theaters and 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 were in the top ten box office of the year.
0: Wow. That's because nobody had internet porn.
2: Nobody had internet porn and nobody even had VHS tapes. See, that was even before VHS porn. That was before movies could be before you could watch porn at home in you any, had to go in, any one way. Out in the theater. <laughs> you had to go to the theater. And usually when you would go to the theater to see porn, it would be some sleazy 42nd Street dive, right? But these movies, Behind the Green Door and Deep Throat, showed in legitimate theaters. It was a, because but that ended really quickly because there was a Supreme Court case about community standards. Um, and they, the studios were worried about lawsuits, and so they said, "We have to stop making these. We have to put a lid on this X-rated stuff because it's going to really wreck the industry." Because the moral cops
1: ruin everything.
2: Yeah, they, did, <laughs> they really did. It lasted about two years, but that must have been an amazing two years when you uh, could go to the to the to the downtown theater and, and see an X-rated movie.
0: All I know is Which that you, an ex-boyfriend of mine used to say that behind the green door, it never got better for him than that.
2: <laughs> really i have to see that i, I have never to see thought, it but
0: the woman in the in that movie was his like ultimate erotic fantasy and he never he's always you got to see that movie behind the green door
2: yeah um, who was it was it Marilyn chambers yeah I, uh, yeah okay yeah i thought so uh,
1: who used to be the the downey spokesperson <laughs> her image was on the downey bottle or
2: box or talk whatever. about a date night. i talk about a date movie. But, you That's know, the were, thing. So adult grown ups used to go to movies when there were movies like that, but, and in the ways that that teenagers now go to see whatever they go see. There was a certain
0: night. honor to those movies and those women, though. Like there isn't today. You know, there was a kind of um, you know a respect for them. They were all you know they're dominating the field basically, and and mm-hmm. taking their clothes off, but in that kind of weird seventies respectable way, you know. Not respectable, but you know what I mean. It's sort of like that was the same era that the the joy of sex was like in everybody's living room. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. in mine. And <laughs> look at that well, book.
2: The, well, that's the thing about the the end of the '60s and the beginning of the '70s was not only um, the uh, the Woodstock generation coming of age, but it was the sexual the beginning of the sexual revolution and, and the beginning the of the disco era.
0: And the end, almost the end too, because yeah. it all came to a screeching halt in the eighties.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And, and in the
1: seventies, women had big, beautiful bushes, and now yeah. it's that weird, crap, creepy, bald stuff. I
0: like the bush. Bring back the bush.
1: Thumbs down on the bald. Thumbs yeah. up with the bush.
0: The bald is gross. Sorry. It's really gross. It's gross. It's just gross all the way around. The the bushes, even if it's a little tiny, tiny one, it's better than nothing. Absolutely. Sorry, but um uh and you know deliverance was like a flash forward to the end of it all wasn't it like
2: <laughs> to me I think I think because people were pushing the limits so fast that they 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 really pushed people over the edge I think and people thought okay that's enough I don't need to see any more of that <laughs> <laughs> no more butt fucking against the tree in the woods. Thanks. That's the only movie I need to see like that. The thing about those movies is they were—you couldn't reproduce them. You couldn't do another movie like them. They were unique in that they couldn't be replicated.
0: Yeah, they were, and they made such a deep footprint. Deliverance. There's never been another movie like it. Quentin Tarantino tried to mimic him a little bit in Pulp Fiction, but um, never got close to that kind of creepy story. <laughs> this is nothing like it. Um, nothing like the Godfather, nothing like cabaret, frankly, the lot and of it? imitators to cabaret, but it's never, you know, the combination of Bob Fosse, which is something you don't really see in theater a lot, which is a really, um, you know, lusty man making a musical, you know, you don't see that. I mean, you see, you see a lot of kind of, you know, like Rob Marshall, it's sort of fake to me. It was just always sort of fake. You know, lust. Like it it never really came through because he was gay. He didn't really Mm -hmm. want to fuck these women. But Bob Fosse did.
1: (laughs) Wanted to and probably did. (laughs)
0: Probably did. That I think it comes through, you know, the lusciousness. And that movie is about sort of, you know, lots of different types of sexuality um, being expressed, probably in ways people had never seen at the movies either, you know. Mm hmm. They'd never really seen a major film with two men falling in love, had they?
2: I don't think so. And and and, and a threesome. It wasn't only that, it was a threesome. And I don't, when had that ever been shown in a movie before?
0: Right, a threesome. Right, especially like for instance nowadays, you would never see something like that.
2: Yeah.
0: In in the post-AIDS environment, you would never see something like that. That was mm-hmm. definitely a pre-AIDS movie. You
2: know. There was a curiosity about that, and people, uh, ups would go see movies like that because, I, because I guess it was all new and it had never been seen before, and they couldn't see it anyplace else. Like you said, there was no internet and there was no, no home video at that time, and so that was the only place that they were curious about it. The, the movies were the only place where you could get a, a dose of it.
0: Yeah, and in such a great way, such a truthful way in Cabaret. Mm-hmm. It's really startling, actually, to watch that movie now.
2: And to, uh, to just two years later, I, I, I watched Lenny again this week. I had seen Lenny a long, long time ago. That was Bob Fosse's follow-up to Cabaret. Lenny is the story of Lenny uh, um, Lenny Bruce, yeah, you know, the comedian Lenny Bruce, who was like a groundbreaking uh, comic who was uh, really. Um, he got arrested time after time for his language. He was the first guy to say he got arrested. The first time he got arrested was because he said cocksucker on stage. <laughs> and, and in 1961, you just couldn't do that. You couldn't say cocksucker in public. If you did, you'd be thrown in jail. And he had to go to, to court for that. And um, so he the, this, that movie had things uh, in about language and drug use and heroin and stuff like that that had never been seen before, I don't think, on film either. And that, that was up against The Godfather, too. Lenny was nominated against Godfather 2.
0: Oh, Godfather two, not Godfather also, but Godfather two.
2: Yeah, Godfather two, Godfather Part two in nineteen seventy four. Just two years later, Coppola and Fosse went head to head again.
0: Did they really?
2: Yeah, for Lenny mm-hmm. and Godfather, for Godfather, and Godfather II. Part two and Lenny. And Lenny was nominated for like five Oscars and won two, I think. I, I think it. And you know, um, Valerie Perrine won uh, Best Actress in Cannes that year. For, for Lenny. So it was a respected movie. It was a really well respected movie.
0: Yeah, it still is. I mean, I, yeah. for some reason, mm-hmm. I don't even associate it with Bob Fosse, except in the way that I think that there are moments in all that jazz that refer to Lenny.
2: Mm-hmm. And you know what, I, what? Watching it again this week, I realized how similar it is in style to Raging Bull. Because it's black and white, and it's really stark, and it's really gritty, and there's really the high contrast lighting, and it was hardcore, rough language, and and brutal, brutally honest about um, people's um, um, personality deficiencies, in the way that Raging Bull is.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Bob Fosse, because he's such a he was such a visual director, you know, um, mm-hmm. and a visual choreographer, you know. It, it's just interesting to me that. You know, you think of you don't think of theater directors as being particularly visual, and that having that translate, but it really did with him. You know, it really translated well. I think, um, especially with a movie like Lenny, which you wouldn't actually peg to be a Bob Fosse movie. You know, you would never think he would make a movie like that.
2: No, not really. Especially the follow-up to Cabaret. Although some of the nightclub scenes um, do have some of the lighting effects. You know, the 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 uh, spotlight effects that he used in Cabaret, cinematography-wise. Mm. Uh, co- talking about a couple of the other Best Picture um, nominees in 1972, we shouldn't overlook. Um, Sounder was a pretty impressive mm. nomine- nominee because it was uh, had an all black cast and a really excellent cast. Who Cicely Tyson was in that, right? Yeah. That and was... it was nominated for for, Oscar, for four Oscars besides Best Picture. And comparing this year to 1972, if we want to try to make that stretch again, there was a foreign film called The Immigrants that was nominated for five Oscars that year.
1: I tried and, to track that down and watch it, but it's not available on uh, U.S. I, DVD right now. And the, I was able to find copy, it. I was I was tracked down. Wouldn't download. I was
2: able to find it, and you know the the really an interesting thing about the immigrants is that there was a sequel to the immigrants called the New Land, and yeah, same it was cast. Also, and it in the same cast, um, and it was also nominated for best foreign film. Uh, they, I think both of them may have won. Um, the immigrants and new the new land
1: might have both won best foreign film. The immigrants had won the year before for best foreign film, and then was nominated for best picture the next year. Okay, right, yeah, uh, but they, you know they, they're connected.
2: They're like one six one six hour long story.
0: Yeah, it's um- pretty.
2: It's pretty tough going, that movie.
0: Cicely Tyson is one of the only on a very, very small list of black actresses to be nominated. And she happened to be nominated the same year with Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. Can you imagine two Mm. leading black actresses on the same year? And they did not win because Liza Benelli's performance was just one of those once-in-a-lifetime Uh, things you know that was it that was her Mm. and you know she was only 25 we go on and on about jennifer lawrence we won't bring that up again Mm. post-traumatic stress disorder but 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 you know
2: a Fuck different it. situation no. with Liza Minnelli, though, because she was already somebody. She was already really well-known, well, and she was a celebrity in her own right, besides, and she had been around for years and doing her own thing. You
0: don't even have to go that far. Look at the parts. Look at the parts. Yeah. Look at what Sally Bowles was. Look at that right? character. That's a,
1: even though she was established already, that was a career and personality-defining role.
0: Oh, my mm-hmm. God, was it ever. I mean, that was it. You know, that uh, Very few actresses have topped her in that movie.
1: She never topped herself.
0: She never topped herself. How could you? I mean, to hit to hit your peak at 25 is tough. But, mm. um, you know, as Bowles, at,
1: at least she did it for something worthwhile. <laughs> I, I fear a certain current <laughs> actors having hit her peak and it being for absolutely nothing.
2: I watched Lady Sings the Blues again this week, too, just because I knew we might be doing the... the 1972 and I'm really impressed with that performance oh my god Diane Ross is incredible it's no, so
0: hard to watch that movie though it's so hard to watch I think it's not
2: a not really a great movie because they, they you know they they lather on their romance a little bit too thickly and yeah. and um, they tried to make it. I don't know what they tried to make it. It's a little bit. It's a little bit soap operaish and trashy. But still, that performance is amazing.
0: Yeah, you've got Liza Minnelli in Cabaret, Diana Ross, Lady Sings the Blues, Maggie Smith travels with my aunt. Doesn't belong there, probably. Mm-hmm. Cicely Tyson, Sounder, and Lee Volman, The Emigrants. I mean, these are incredible, mm-hmm. strong female roles and films. Most of them were nominated for best, or at least three of them were nominated for best picture. I mean, that that that's an Oscar year I could get behind. Mm -hmm. But check this out Best Supporting Actor
2: I know, I'm just looking at it
0: Three from The Godfather Lost to Joel Grey And poor Eddie Albert
2: (laughs) Talk about Split Boat though That's that's one one situation Where I can really, I know poor Eddie Albert In The Heartbreak Kid He had no chance at all, right? <laughs> but but when you have James Connor and Robert De and Al Pacino all nominated for in the same movie against each other, you know that's going to split the vote in too many ways. And so that's one of the reasons reason why Joe Gray won.
1: Yes. Is it just me or should Marlon Brando have been in the supporting category and Al Pacino been in no, the lead category? No,
2: you're right. You're right. As no, far as screen big, time and and, uh, and number of lines and stuff, you're absolutely right. There's a
0: whole big thing in here about that in the book about a Paramount ordering them to because they knew that Marlon Brando could win in that category because right. he
1: was, and they uh, were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it was one of cool. those things, you know, where where it's a supporting role that, you know, like, uh, I mean, it happens all the time, actually.
1: But
2: It's also, the title role. We have to, that's one thing it had going in its favor. It is the title role.
1: And it's deeply impactful. I think uh, Pacino's mm-hmm. role, especially compared, or his performance, especially compared to many of his later performances, is a lot more subtle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So and good, he also, though. Yeah, it is.
0: He's better in, in 2, in Godfather 2 is where he really shines, but... Yeah. And none of these guys were particularly virtuous. You know, it just shows you how much they loved that movie. But mm-hmm. they, lo- like Lincoln, they loved it more heading into the nominations than they did by the time it got nominated. And it, it felt like a, a done deal.
1: And they're done that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Let's go back and rehash it all again. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh! so there were so many other great movies that didn't make it through like the candidate was was this oscar year um butterflies are free weirdly enough didn't get nominated for the two top acting categories which surprises me because i was seven years old this this year 1972 and mm. Um, the only movie of the best pictures... I, I remember Cabaret, of course, because everybody saw Cabaret. I remember The Godfather, but it wasn't my kind of movie as a little kid. And But Sounder was the one that really hit me the hardest of all of them. That was definitely a pack the kids and hide hide them in the trunk of my mom's car and sneak into the drive-in movie, <laughs> which is what we did. I,
2: I saw it a long, long time ago. I can't remember, but I remember that it was heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking movie, and it, the ending is really touching, right? Because... I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't seen it, but it's a it's a people get reunited have been separated, right? Mm. At the end of the movie, and it's really it's really heartbreaking and touching, really emotional movie. I think forty years
1: later, you're allowed to have spoilers. <laughs> I think so, probably. <laughs> that's, that's but I mean, it's,
2: it's probably one of those movies that maybe people have overlooked because they haven't yeah. heard much about. And and part of the reason I, th- I like these podcasts is we can bring these movies back into the conversation that have
1: that have uh, dropped out. It was such people a big deal at the time and yet he, now here we are and, and pe- most people probably don't even really remember it until except when it's maybe brought up and then they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's especially poignant this year because we had Argo winning three Oscars and um, having the, the awards split up in such a significant way isn't like 1972 because in 1972 they, they didn't split in, in that much. They, they were really was really heavy leaning toward cabaret and for the, for the Godfather being the Best Picture winner and to only win three Oscars is pretty startling, even now. You know, with, with 10 Best Picture nominees, you could kind of see it happening more. But with five and with 11 nominations, pretty crazy that it went down that way.
1: It makes sense that it was crazy though, because there were two s- such great movies that it makes sense that there's going to be weirdness. But this year, it doesn't make any sense
0: oh. to me. It hurts. <laughs> it burns. It burns. Uh-huh. <laughs> but
1: this this year we
2: have said many times was was full of uh, great movies too. There were three or four or five great movies that will that are that we all loved a lot. So Right, but they just didn't choose
1: either of them. Know, of them they didn't thing. choose any of them. That's the thing. You're right.
0: There was nothing going to stop Ben Affleck. It just you know, he's too likable. He's too big of a star. He charmed the pants off of everybody. You know, it was just never going. He was the perfect underdog to take on mean, big, old, mean Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I mean, and then in the middle of it all, my only tiny regret is not really seeing the Ong Lee thing coming. And being annoyed that Chris Tapley and Ann Thompson did. That's like if I have a, a, a bitter taste in my mouth after this Oscar year. It won't be all the other hideous ways I embarrass myself. It'll be that one tiny thing that bothers I me.
2: I wouldn't say. I just don't see that we didn't see it coming. Because we, we, gave the, we gave the movie all kinds of coverage. And your your interview with Ang Lee... Uh, in November before the movie was even released was, was incredible.
0: No, no, not that I, we didn't support the movie. We did. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, at at the end of the day, when they were saying that he was, that they were all predicting him to win, that there was all this big windfall and all this talk and buzz about on Lee, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the stats still backed up Steven Spielberg. Although, even though all along, I said that I didn't think the Academy were going to split with Steven Spielberg. I didn't think they were going to go Spielberg and then give best picture something else. If they were going to pick Spielberg, they would pick Lincoln for best picture. Mm-hmm. You know, but that was my reasoning with Life of Pi. Also, I thought if they were going to pick On Lee, wouldn't they pick Life of Pi for Best Picture? You know, it just didn't make sense to me that they would split that way.
2: Yeah.
0: I up until the the moment they announced it, I couldn't believe it. You know, uh, mm.
2: oh well. <laughs> it's still that. it's oh, going to wow. it's going to weigh on our minds <laughs> and, and our hearts for a long, for years and years. We're never going to get over it.
0: Maybe never. <laughs> <laughs> oh god god oh you'll be
1: at the oscar old age home in your wheelchair twitching every time somebody mentions argo
0: Argo. well the only one one nice little tiny time you know and it's you know obviously feel bad about shitting on argo it's totally not fair it's only because it's the it one that Anybody would ever dare say a terrible thing about it because it isn't the best picture of the year. And same with The King's Speech, you know, when these movies that are, you know, good movies, very good movies get labeled best, you know, it suddenly makes them seem less so. But mm-hmm. um, but both my mom and my dad were just independently of each other, just like, oh, God, my dad was like, Argo was so boring and bad. And my mom was like, I can't believe that movie won Best Picture. I can't believe it It was a terrible night. Jennifer Lawrence, what a joke. (laughs) My mom said all that without even prompting from me or having read my website or anything, you know. And usually she's the type that would be like, I saw this real cute movie, Silver Linings Place.
1: (laughs) For those of you keeping a score at home, Sasha's mom does sound exactly like that. That was a dead-on impression of Sasha's mom.
0: (laughs) But she didn't. She was like, you know, she was horrified. She
1: thought. Because like,
2: our moms liked, at least my mom liked the blind side, and my mom liked the King's speech, you know. So our moms usually know what's going on about these things, you know. Because
0: how can you not like the King's speech? I mean,. Right, I mean, yeah.
2: And, 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 and also, that- our mothers are the, the Academy demographic.
0: But the, the King's Speech was different from Argo for my parents because they were – it's so weird saying my parents. Like they, they divorced mm. after my sister was born. But, mm. um, but they lived through the Iran hostage stuff. So to them it wasn't that interesting. Whereas with King's Speech at least it was about, about a period of time and something they didn't know. They wouldn't have known. But right. my dad was all about Zero Dark Thirty and my mom was all about Life of Pi. It just That's shows great. you a strong year it was. You know, like yeah. People were split up all over the place. They couldn't align behind one movie, frankly.
1: So they defaulted to the okay pick.
0: Yeah, to the good, but not as good as the others. You know, it's not a tragedy. It's just the Oscars. We have to remember that. We should announce that Craig and I are going to Cannes. We... And not Ryan.
1: I'm not. I'm staying (laughs) home. Ryan's
0: staying home. But we will be doing reportage from Cannes, which is coming up in May. That's coming soon. I still can't
1: believe that I'm going honestly.
0: He's still C A N N E S and apostrophe T. What? You know can. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we'll call this podcast. <laughs> can. <laughs> no.
2: We'll be able, to, maybe we can podcast while you, we've never tried that before to podcast uh, across the Atlantic. It'd I be wonder
0: fun. if we could do that. If we could get our times right, why not? Yeah. You know, if we're on Skype, yeah. yeah. it would be so fun. It be would be great. Would be great. Um, that's coming up, and we don't know what movies are coming to ca- to Can but, but.
1: Except for. Um... Great, Gatsby. great Gatsby's opening, right? Yeah.
0: and we yes. think that the the Cohens will probably be there with uh, with um, Llewellyn Davis. And
1: is that the consensus? I'm not buying it.
0: Yeah, they do. They always go.
1: They didn't with. Uh,
0: Burn after reading
1: or True Grit.
2: Yeah, hmm. that's yeah that's, those. Those don't really seem like canned movies to me. Either of those, though. This this I do think is they're back in ser- real serious. Uh, art mode, I think with inside Lewin Davis,
0: you know, what I was thinking last night was, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is going to be the, um, he's the jury, the head of the jury and which is great. And, and on the can website, if you go on there, by the way, Craig, I don't know if you know, but there's a, there's a, if you click on the thing that says, um, app, uh, mm-hmm. can app, have you done that yet? They have a, like a login and a password that will take you into this whole other level. that has photos and stuff. Pretty cool thing to have. Oh, like the, the
1: press area?
0: Yeah, the online press area. But um, anyway, he's the guy. He's the head of being the head of the jury. And I was thinking, you know, what Steven Spielberg got this past year was something he really didn't have before. He kind of had it, but he's never really been since the '70s the misunderstood artist that the the mainstreamers didn't um, vote for. You know what I mean? Like he's he's transferred himself over to that snooty group now after Lincoln. <laughs> After Lincoln got snubbed and got was sort of raved by the critics. Yeah, it was it was, you know, shit on by a lot of male mainstream bloggers um who called it boring or whatever and the academy certainly didn't go for it at all. And a lot of people didn't like it, but it did have major critic cred and it might end up taking Spielberg onto some of those lists, you know. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. At some point, it might become turn out to be his, you know, one of his masterpieces. Maybe I'm just kidding myself. Who knows? People are like, oh, poor Sasha, she just can't let it go. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I really do think that that's a potential to happen with him in this movie. It's just kind of snooty enough, you know?
2: Yeah, it's uh, certainly literary and intellectual enough. It's probably his most intellectual movie.
0: And I think that's good enough. Like, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, yeah, you know, I was so bummed out when Tony Kushner didn't win, but I thought, you know, just being nominated for an Oscar and having that attention is good. You know, whether or not the winning part is like the least... Meaningful part of it, I think, in a way. I
2: have to say that when you, when we started hearing that Mark Harris and Tony Kushner were both pretty blasé about whether or not they were winning anything or not, I started, I started to try to be that way too. Because if he himself is is really shrugging it off, then why should we worry about it?
0: Yeah, exactly. And he
2: was, he was actually. Um, he seemed really pretty happy for Chris Terrio. You know, I know that's being magnanimous and everything like that, which is a, a very gentlemanly way to be, and you wouldn't want him to be any other way, but it really feel, it feels more than that. It just feels genuinely like like he, he doesn't need an Oscar.
0: Right, exactly. And Chris Terrio, this is probably going to be the best he'll ever do.
2: i hope so i really hope so
0: (laughs) he is the nicest guy though it's true like that's the thing is like it's the same with the king's speech like they were all so nice and everybody in argo was so nice ben affleck is nice chris terrio is nice you know all the actors are, are great you know john goodman and um well, Alan not John Arken. Goodman necessarily. He's kind of a prick. <laughs> Alan
1: but he's a lovable prick.
0: He's a lovable prick. You know, that's the thing. So, you know, you got to be happy for them. This is it for them. You know, probably their mm-hmm. career peak. I mean, look at Steven Spielberg. Look what he's accomplished. And Tony Kushner's won a Pulitzer.
1: Nothing mm-hmm. can take away the fact that Tony Kushner wrote a fantastic screenplay. Nothing. No, no, no award he doesn't get will ever change that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: We really drifted away from the Godfather a lot. There's so much we could talk. I mean, I don't. I don't mean that. I don't mean I'm not trying to drag us back to it. But we could probably talk about the Godfather every podcast and not run out of things to say about yeah, it. Yeah, we haven't actually
0: talked about the movie.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We haven't really talked so much about the movie. We talked about the making of the movie and the the social and the cultural impact of the movie. But the movie itself, we we didn't really talk about that much. One thing I've always wondered about, and I wonder if it's true or not. Uh, Robert Evans has claimed that the first cut of the movie that Coppola turned in was only two hours long. And Robert Evans said, man, you shot so much great stuff, where is it? You need to put at least 30 minutes me. I want a longer movie. You can give us a longer movie if you want to. So they went back and re-edited it and put 30 more minutes into it. And whether or not that's true, whether or not it was Coppola's decision or, or Evans' decision, Coppola has denied it. And in fact, publicly, right, there was like a public letter, you know, one of those letters that they used to do back then, uh, you know, open letter, so that everybody could read it. And Coppola said, you know, I don't understand you, man. You know, I've been trying to be nice about this, but you need to shut up about taking credit for The Godfather. It's my movie.
1: Well, that's yeah. the thing, is Coppola says that he... He was warned that if he didn't come in with a cut under a certain length that the studio was going to take the movie and force him to – he he'd, he'd had the rights to edit it up at home in, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And the studio said if, if, if you don't come in under a certain length, um, we're taking the movie and you're going to have to come down to Los Angeles to edit it. And he didn't want to do that. So we figured, okay, I'm going to cut out everything except for the basic plot and just get it as lean as I possibly can so that that doesn't happen. And mm-hmm. that's the cut that he turned into the studio. And the studio was like, wait a minute, where did all that great stuff go that you had in there? And they, mm-hmm. they insisted that, that he put it back in. I mean, obviously, it was all stuff that he wanted to have in there. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep the studio out of his hair, he had cut it out. And, I and so like now, that story. Now, Evans takes credit for being the one who saw the greatness of that stuff and put it back in, which is a load of crap.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah I, 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 you got to respect Robert Evans because of the movies that he did give us Rosemary's Baby and The Godfather in Chinatown. But I don't think that just because you you, you assemble everybody together to make the movie, and then all you want to do is fight with them about the movie. you can't really take credit for the movie that results from the fact of you're arguing with everybody all the time. right
0: Well, there was also a kind of a strain that ran through those young directors they were they were arrogant pricks in a lot of ways mm. like coppola was quoted as saying on the night of the godfather losing best director saying i, th- I thought i was gonna win that you know and same with spielberg and you know they, they were the young bucks they were mm. um you know george lucas they were they wanted to buck the system they wanted to fight against and rail against god there's a couple of stories from um, apocalypse now which by the way is also one of the greatest movies ever made mm. Um, no, that movie never gets old I mean mm-hmm. God, that's the thing about The Godfather and Apocalypse Now and The Godfather 2 and, and Cabaret also Cabaret is a little more a sign of its time to me a little bit more than, than, than The Godfather which feels timeless to me mm-hmm. like when I watch mm-hmm. that movie I don't think about the 70s particularly like I'm right in that I, he was so meticulous with making I mean it looks like a 70s movie of course
2: Mm-hmm. It does, but in the same way, you know, I've, I talk about the, the conformists a lot. Bertolucci is the conformist, which was made just one year, one year before. One thing that I read that really surprised, I, it shouldn't have surprised me, because I I know that, that Coppola quotes shots from the conformist in The Godfather Part Two, So obviously he had seen it because he quotes the shots. He quote, he pays homage to Bertolucci. But he actually, during the conformist, he watched, he, I mean, during filming The Conversation, Coppola, they say, watched the conformist every day. Wow! And so, the, when you see the conformist, you'll see the stylistic similarities between the Godfather films, reproducing the nineteen thirties and forties so meticulously that you, it's almost as if you're watching a movie that was made in the nineteen thirties. Wow! You know, even though, I, like you said, the 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 uh, the sentiment, the uh, sentiment, the personality of the movies, the, uh, the, the 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 brain of the movie is a nineteen seventies brain, but the look of the movie is definitely nineteen thirties.
0: Oh yeah. And, um, you know, not just those guys, but Scorsese was another one of the young bucks. I mean, they were so worshiped by critics mm-hmm. that gave them leverage and power, but the industry appeared and I'm, I know sweeping generalizations again, but they appeared to resent them for that. Um, Coppola kind of broke through it by winning Godfather One and Godfather Two, because again those are unequivocal movies. They're unequivocal. They're just And great. they
2: were moneymakers too. And, and, and money no makers. matter how much you want to resent the young bucks, you want you want the stu- the studio establishment want that money. Yeah. You know?
0: And today we have a few of them of that school. David Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson are two that I can think of right off the bat that are of that school. I would say Joel Cohen. Ethan Cohen is is um, is kind of you know, but walks to a beat of a different drummer. But <laughs> Joel Cohen's definitely of that ilk. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are a few of them. I would put Jane Campion in that group.
2: Too. Maybe Aronofsky.
0: And and maybe Aronofsky a little bit. Yeah.
2: We'll just see how Noah turns out. But I mean, I think he's he's trying to be more mainstream with movies like Black Swan. You know, he's trying not to be That's so what artsy I think too.
0: Yeah, and David O. Russell, same thing. Like he's definitely yeah. kind of go- gone the other way. You know, he's he's moved mm-hmm. away from that enfant terrible thing and has become more of a, a you know a company a guy player.
2: you can depend on.
0: Yeah, like a, a, mm-hmm. a whether he did it for economic reasons or because he wants to win an Oscar, whatever it is, he's that guy. You know, mm-hmm. he's that guy now. He's in the club, so he probably will win an Oscar if not this coming year. <clears throat> Certainly, within the next five years, I will say he'll win Best Picture, Best Director.
2: Well, they're all smart enough to know that unless you make movies that are that are that are going to make a lot of money, you're gonna you're not going to be making movies very long.
0: And you need you to make touchy-feeling movies. That might yeah. be his hardest. Mm-hmm. He tried with uh, Silver Linings. It, she tried to make it a touchy-feeling movie, but it didn't quite get there. Um, but uh, Fincher, Paul Thomas Anderson, those guys—they'll never make movies that the Academy likes ever you know, and and more power to them. You know, I Mm -hmm. hope that they never win Oscars. Please let them make movies that never win Oscars because Mm -hmm. those will be great movies. Right?
1: That's the way I feel about the Coen Brothers, which is just still bizarre to me that they have one. (laughs) I I think I I bring this up every podcast, but I'm still stunned.
0: Well, Maybe we could talk about our... Well, do you want to talk about Godfather or do you want to do our unequivocal list?
2: I either... And, you know I could like I said, I could talk about a, the Godfather another three hours, but probably that would be too long for a yeah, podcast and, and so seen we, it, maybe need to move on
0: yeah, let me just say a couple of things that I love about the Godfather um number one uh I always get them mixed up The Godfather one and Godfather two, and I have to say I'm probably a little more familiar with two than with one because two has Fredo and all that, you know, and it has mm-hmm. it has Diane Keaton freaking out um and it has his which is the one where Michael goes to Sicily and his wife... Um, well, that's, that's one. That's one, he, yeah. He,
1: yeah, huh? yeah.
0: So, okay. There's too much to say about The Godfather. I don't think we can even go there.
1: It's amazing guess, we'll how be, well, well both of them blend together.
2: Yeah, they we'll do. be able... When, in, in just a, a couple of weeks when we talk. We're get to 1974, we'll be able to talk about The Godfather some more there because we'll talk okay. about The Godfather 2. I really oh, prefer bad. The Godfather 2. It's, it's, it's more my favorite movie than The Godfather is.
0: Yeah, it's hard for me to... I thought decide. I preferred
1: it uh, unequivocally, but before I sat down and watched one again, and I realized how great one is, and there's there's so many things about one that I like that were, that were sort of missing from two. We can talk about it a little more when we get to two, but yeah. just it, it goes to what I was saying before about all the little details that Coppola threw in. I think the story's a little smaller, and so it doesn't quite overwhelm all of those textural... Things as much as it does in, in two, and so yeah. I guess the point I'm trying to make is I still think I would pick two over one, but I think one really holds its own really well.
0: God, I know. I mean, they're both so good, and they both have those, you know, other than the fact that they're just, you know, great character dramas, but those those wonderful moments of those ominous moments where someone's about to die, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and you hear the music, and you know, the creepy guy that shadows someone who's about to get. You know, whacked. It's just mm. so great. It's never been, honestly, never been equal. The Sopranos, as good as it was, couldn't come close to the Godfathers.
2: When you can watch a movie twenty-five times and then you still love it after the twenty-fifth time, you know that's some kind of great
1: movie.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I've and it long... feels
1: almost like you're watching it for the first time every time. Yeah.
0: Both of them, both Godfather one and two. Yeah.
1: I still can't believe, looking at the list of nominees from '72, that Gordon Willis wasn't nominated for cinematography at all. Oh, for first, number one.
2: Yeah, that's amazing, think, isn't oh, it? I, maybe because people just weren't used to it. Because when you look at movies pre-1972, uh, and I think they they had to fight the studio about this, too, because they were saying, we have all these great sets and these great actors, but we can't see them. You've got them in the dark. Right. You need to light it up a little bit, can you? And movies in the 60s and this, in the early 70s, and even since then, usually you, they're really overlit. And that's mm. one of the very first movies that was was brave enough to, to put everything in shadow.
0: Okay, I'll say what my favorite part of Godfather One is, and that's when they go to Hollywood
2: <laughs> to visit the. Oh, houses. I love that! too. even the, the music and the airplane, the music, and, 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 and the, when the the, the whole house. tone shifts, I know they go
1: into that jazzy like da 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 da. I just love that! I, I think that music that you're talking about was part of what the studio wanted for the score of the whole film. Oh, that. No. uh coppola had to fight for nino rota to do his thing and the studio wanted more much along the lines of what they did for the hollywood sequence so that's interesting
0: oh and then also just to show i'm not a hard-hearted guy I i paid for music lessons dance lessons (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, that whole scene is so great. And, you know, and then, of course, Robert Duvall is. you know, my, you know, my client needs to know this as soon as possible. And then he the wants next, the
2: bad news right away. He wants
0: the bad news right away. And then you see that great shot of the outside of the house. Mm. In the dawn hours And you hear mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you go in on him and he lifts his car It's just the whole thing That whole horse head And then cutting right to Vito Corleone Like shrugging his shoulders
2: Do you like, know that oh. was a real horse head? That was a horse that had been slaughtered for the glue factory And uh, they, that was an actual horse head That they, they, they put on dry ice And brought to the set that day That uh, wasn't a fake horse head That was the real
1: thing So that's pretty that's terrifying, that's terrifying that's to be in out. bed with that
0: Poor
2: Horsey.
1: I know, poor Horsey, but I mean, God damn. I think my favorite scene is Luca Brazzi at the wedding, practice, sitting outside practicing the little speech that he wants to give <laughs> okay. to the Godfather to congratulate him on his uh, on his daughter's wedding. You know what and I heard and about that? He still blows it. Daughters, You know what I heard sweating. about?
2: You know that that guy was a was a like a professional wrestler or something. He was yeah. a big thug, and he wasn't an actor. And he actually did have trouble memorizing his lines, and so they thought, well, we'll just use that. We'll show him practicing his lines, and that he's having trouble, and he stumbled because that's pretty
1: charming. That's pretty interesting. that He does that. And that so was they one really... of the many little details that Coppola added. Because mm-hmm. you're right, he the guy totally blew the scene because he was nervous about working with Marlon Brando, no. and so. So Coppola thought, you know what, I'm just going to add this scene where he's practicing and it'll work perfectly. And it's one of the best parts of the whole movie.
0: Wow. Johnny Fontaine does not get that picture. (laughs) 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 Craig and I once sat in a movie screening trying to figure out who that actress of today would be. Like, you know, where he says... um, you know, she was young, she was beautiful, she's the best piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had them all over the world.
2: <laughs> we were trying you mean to come who, up the a- who that actress would be? Well,
0: like if we had to pick uh. one today, and I, the closest uh. I thought we could come to it was Amanda Seyfried.
2: Oh, yeah, uh, it would Someone,
0: work. You know, who's like, he would totally ruin the guy's career over losing uh-huh. somebody like that. Or maybe, maybe Jennifer
2: Lawrence. But <laughs> so what was creepy about that scene, though? Wasn't she, like, 15 years old or something? Wasn't that the story, that she was like a kid? She was like a child yeah. actress.
0: Right, and he brought her up and got her singing yeah. lessons, dance uh-huh. lessons. Oh, yeah. creepy.
2: The ultimate we- creepy producer.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it'd be almost like uh, Dakota Fanning, maybe.
0: Or um, Chloe Moretz.
1: Yeah, Ooh. there you go. Yeah, we're going to have nightmares about that
0: tonight. <laughs> Chloe Moretz. Or Natalie Yikes. Portman, when she Yikes. was young, Yikes. like in The yeah. Professional. Uh-huh. She was, but Natalie Portman's a little too hard. I think she's too hard-hearted for him. You know, mm-hmm. uh, got to go with Chloe. That's
2: a good choice. Yeah. Okay. But can you imagine anybody trying to remake The Godfather? I mean, we sometimes we talk about would a movie like The Godfather would be made today? And I think that it could be made, but it would not be made the same way because you wouldn't have all. You really have to have that magical chemistry come together. And the unexpected things that you could never prepare for—you would never, you could never imagine the things that Coppola was going to bring to it. They just thought they would get, a, they would get hire a guy with an Italian name and it would help tamp down the outrage of the Italian American community. That was the only—that was the main reason they hired him. They had no idea what he was going to bring to it.
1: And he was cheap, and they could push him around. Yeah, mm-hmm. or so they thought. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those movies that. A little bit like Casablanca in that it's almost like a happy accident in terms of mm. just everything all coming together at the right time and at the right place and every, everybody kind of at the peak of their, their powers doing their thing and it, it almost coming out of nowhere in a certain way and, and becoming better than what it looked like it would on paper. Mm-hmm. And certainly better than the source material. Right.
2: you, that's, that's, you, you can. It's really hard to adapt um, a great... A literary masterpiece but it's you usually have better luck adapting a sort of a mediocre novel right because you can improve on it you can you can bring things you know that you need you know you have to bring things to it and when you do bring those other things to it you improve it and you you elevate it mm.
0: <clears throat> okay unequivocal time sorry game change was just popped on the tv hmm which I've seen like 20 times. <laughs> Every time it comes on, I put it on.
1: That little snippet that I just heard is all I've ever experienced of that. Oh, really? Mm-hmm.
0: Seriously, you never watched it? Nope. Oh, it's so good. Julianne Moore is so great as Sarah Palin.
1: I've got a, uh, a hard-on against Sarah Palin, so I can't I can't abide anything that has her in it, even if it's making fun of her or whatever. I don't care. I just want to close my eyes and pretend she never happened. <laughs> <laughs> She just gets worse, too, doesn't she? She's worse
2: now than she even was during that campaign era. She's almost
1: comical now, though, because she's harmless. Whereas whereas before, she seemed like a real threat.
0: She's so hideous.
2: Um, She's so hideous now because she's so mean. She's so mean-spirited. She's such a little smartass. She's
0: gross. Don't you hate that? But my, I'm just going through kind of a Julianne Moore phase right now. Like mm-hmm. I'm just, just really loving her work in that, and in Kids Are All Right. Um, anything that she's in, I'll probably watch these days for some weird reason. I don't know why, but
1: she's great, and all the haters can suck it. And how she lost for
2: Far From Heaven, I'll never understand.
0: Uh, that was another. She question.
2: was great in A Single Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. She was great
2: heard. in Boogie Nights. Talking about the transition from, from movies to home video porn
0: (laughs) she's great and safe Mm -hmm. you know she's wonderful in shortcuts she's just she's just a really good actress um very unsung because she's so kind of humble but well, she syrup. becomes
1: part of snarky internet memes about like the Julianne Moore crying scenes and all that crap. I'm so sick of the internet. I haven't the internet seen is that. a big giant asshole, <sighs> and I'm tired of it.
2: That's another thing I was thinking about the internet today too, because all this stuff that's come up about about uh, um, Lynn Ramsey. And, and yeah. Jane got a gun. How, uh-huh. Everybody knows all about this now. Right. And, and the things that were happening behind the scenes with The Godfather, nobody knew about that unless, even if you read Variety, you wouldn't know about all these insider stories. These, all sto- these stories that we know have all come out decades later because when people write their memoirs, you know. Nobody at the time, unless you were on the inside, directly involved with the production, you wouldn't have known any of this stuff was going on. But this would be, it would have been all over the internet.
1: Plus, well, the thing is, people are talking about it now when, pe- when nobody actually really knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. We, we know the basics, but people are sort of filling in the blanks and painting Lynn Ramsey to be this monster shrew who's ruining independent cinema. And nobody really knows. We've gotten, we've gotten the word of the producer, and that's about it. And And nobody's really done any, at least the last time I checked... It's been a couple of days, things change quickly, but there's not been any real reporting. There's just a lot of assumptions going on. Uh And that's the irritating thing about the Internet is that it gets a, a, a nugget of information and spins it into a week's worth of, of nonsense, and that's sort of what's happening with this movie and right now. That stuff
2: sticks. That stuff sticks to movies too. So, that, so that eventually, when Jane got, got a gun does come out, people are going to remember all of this stuff, and it's going to it's going to uh, sh- shade their opinions of the movie. And if that if this had happened in the nineteen seventies, all the turmoil behind the scenes in movies back then, those those that kind of dirt would have stuck to those movies back then too. People would have gone into them thinking about all the problems that they had heard about during production, and it would have would have of, uh, tainted their opinion I think but I don't
0: it. think they will with this because to me I bet you anything it turned out that the producer wanted her to do something she didn't want to do
1: mm-hmm. I and think so too. whatever
0: whatever direction he wanted to take it in she didn't wasn't down with that and I trust her instincts you know I does not want to be well, but,
1: it's so. telling that Michael Fassbender left the project too I mean yeah, it's he like left there's, it there's something going on there that it's not just Lynn Ramsey
0: there's something yeah. that they didn't want to do there's something they didn't agree with or like and those guys have integrity. To walk off.
2: I trust her because I, I know her work. That's why we trust her, because we yeah. know what she's capable and of. We know I've that never. we like her movies. This other guy, I would have no idea who he is and what he's ever done. And so why should I believe his side of the story?
1: Well, it may turn out that she is this horrible person, but has she not earned the benefit of a doubt until we know the facts, or at least at least right. hear her side of the story, which we haven't yet? She is a horrible person. Her publicist was was the wife or girlfriend of the producer, so her manager, I think. Yeah, yeah whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just not known. So the Internet needs to shut it. Shut and I like backs. the fact that she's not talking about it. I am mean, like people are saying
2: well, she should come on Twitter and tell us what's going on. It would just take one or two tweets. But she, you know, why should she do that? She doesn't owe us any explanation. Exactly. She doesn't is, owe Twitter does she the explanation what about think. what happened.
0: It's so gross. We're such a gross mob that we were so gross and hungry that we need to know this information. I mean – The Catherine Bigelow thing to me was a huge wake-up call because I got caught up in that, and a lot of people did, like Bob Burns, who wouldn't even come to our site because of
2: Zero Dark Thirty. Such a good friend of the site for so many years, since the beginning
0: for fifteen years, and this was it for him. We were were torture apologists, and that was that. I
1: know. I hope you're listening. Has he since apologized for his stupidity?
2: No, I don't know. He was, I don't think he was stupid. I don't think he, he just had really strong feelings. The same way we all had strong feelings, and he was he wanted to make, let it be known that he didn't agree with some of the things that were being said on the site. That's his right, and and since we like since we know him and like him, we never gave him a hard time about it.
0: But I, I think that it's an example of hysteria, the same kind of hysteria that took hold in Massachusetts during the witch trials, and the same kind of hysteria that took hold in the '90s with the McMartin preschoolers. I I just think that we have a way now of con- connecting um, with each other so rapidly that uh, this kind of stuff can happen and it has no place in art and in film it, it doesn't it, it, sure for politics that's fine but um, when it comes to artists and, and filmmakers, and because the dangerous. thing
2: about it, if you're going to if you 're going to have an opinion on a blog or in a, or in a tweet, you have to make up your mind about what your opinion is going to be within seconds within minutes you have to decide what you 're going to say about it because it's going it 's so immediate, uh-huh. and that 's not really not time enough to think about it. you should give you should have more you should you should uh, wait longer to get to be more thoughtful about your um...
0: right they turn into the mob the, Catherine Bigelow mm-hmm. faced down a mob. That was a mob. That's a mob in action. And and Lynn Ramsey's sort of facing the same thing, too. Notice how it never happens to men.
2: Right. That's the thing that really bugs me about it, is that the the men skate free of all this kind of thing. But it's the, they really want to um, pounce and slap the woman around if she does something like this, yeah, if they she gets like involved like in something like this.
0: David
1: O. Got- you know, was has taken a lot of shit like that he did yeah. for obviously for blowing up at lily tomlin but also there was that uh what was the movie that fell through that, that he was working on
0: uh right right
1: i can't remember what it was and I, I think ultimately he was not implicated because it was the producer that didn't have the money that screwed things up but at first it was kind of like okay what's david o russell up to now but imagine... he's about the, he's about the only one who has who has been tainted like that it's like it it it, more like, often than not, it seems to be women who get the short end. Things have mm-hmm.
0: changed so much that if the David O. Russell thing had happened now, during like Silver Linings or whatever, that would have been it for him. He would have been over. Yeah. Um, because things have changed that dramatically since that time that that movie came. You know that that David O. Russell thing, or even the Christian Bale, um, mm-hmm. Christian Bale having a tantrum on a set. That was tiny compared to. To what goes on now how fast information travels oh into. i know
2: just think about david o russell's uh, expression at the baptist when emmanuel riva won right. the, the bafta award that, that that got so much play his, his just his grimace yeah. turned almost into a, a career ruining thing right there or at least an oscar destroying thing i know
0: him. i feel like the, the pathways were deeply carved during the obama election during the last election and those pathways are open and need to be used, and they're being used in all the wrong ways. Where it comes to art and film, it's bizarre. I would never want to be in the industry right now. I can barely stand to be on Twitter now because it's such a hostile environment. People are so hostile, and I become hostile on there. You know, it's just not a, mm-hmm. a well, you,
2: How way. you? How can you? It's hard to not be hostile when you're when you're approached so aggressively by people, yeah. but, but people who seem to have such, to me, such bizarre opinions about things that they're so adamant about I mean, it's it's impossible to talk to anybody about gun control at all oh, because control. the people who are who are who want as little gun control as possible are really pretty scary in their opinions
0: yeah if you say um 2,800 2, people have died since by gun related deaths since newtown you get people calling you, writing you, and saying, "How many have died from DUIs? How many abortions?" Some guy wrote me and said, "How many abortions? Have, how many people have abortions murdered this year?" It's a totally different thing.
2: <laughs> it can't. How many? Yeah, that's like what since I said. Since Newtown, you know, abortions right. since
0: Newtown. How does that even?
2: <laughs> how many heart attacks since Newtown?
0: It's like you could say, "How many abortions <laughs> since Roe v. Wade?" That would make sense, you know. Right. But drunk driving—not enough is, apparently. <laughs> drunk driving is is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drug driving is actually down. It's they've gotten it down to be beneath, uh, below mm-hmm. ten thousand per year, which. And is that's mean, the
1: thing is there are rules against drunk driving, just like there should be rules against certain kinds of guns. So that's
2: what I saw on Twitter today. This guy was arguing when he, the guy brought up the thing about DUIs. He said, "Well, you know, people can buy, buy a beer easier than they can buy a gun." and I'm like what the fuck are you saying man of course you should be able to buy a beer better faster than easier than you can buy a gun because you know not everybody that drinks a beer is going to use it to kill somebody a beer is not a murder weapon
0: right and it's also yeah. like with drunk driving, people, you know, cops are watching you on the road. It's it's yeah. a very hotly watched illegal activity and people will report it if they see it, you know. And there's shame. societal shame to it. Mm-hmm. There's societal shame. Exactly. There's no shame. There's defiance. Imagine if people were, I mean, I guess they were during prohibition about alcohol, mm-hmm. but.
2: And the thing about DUI is that's an accidental thing. It's, nobody goes out deliberately to get wasted and then get, ask for their car keys and says, now I'm going to go kill somebody. <laughs> it's, it happens by accident, you know. But, but if, you get, if you load your gun, it's a different thing than getting loaded on beer. If you load your gun, you have something in mind that you're going to do. You're oh, going to do yeah. harm.
0: Yeah, there's there's the that you know that radio show, the story, which is not a podcast, as Craig told me the other day. It's not a podcast. It's a, it's an NPR or American Public Radio um, called the Story with Dick Gordon. Really worth a listen. But they've done this whole long series on gun stories, and they've talked to people who have had experience with guns, and you know, um, in good and bad ways. I got one guy had a gun in his car um, a day that they were having a you know a school shooting a school shooter came on and he was able to run to his car and get his gun he didn't stop people from being killed but he scared the shooter enough to get him arrested by the cops and he's mm-hmm. he never got to kill himself he's still in jail now mm-hmm. um so that was one good story but he, the guy was really well trained with firearms he wasn't you know It's just, it's a weird, but then they had That's such a
2: rare situation though. That's like, it's so rare that it's like, it's almost like unreal, that it's so rare.
0: And this one kid said that he, you know, his, he was being bullied by this guy at home and he was 12 years old and his dad had a whole rack of guns and he was so mad at his father and so mad at everybody in the house that he picked up a gun and he walked down the hall and he thought, I'm going to kill my dad. And he was so ready to do it. And then he just thought like, where will I end up? Where will I end mm-hmm. up if I do this? I don't know where I'm going to end up. And so that stopped him, and he didn't do it. But he he was one of the anti-gun people. It's just an interesting debate. Like, there are people on both sides, people from oppressive regimes who say that if you take away the arms of the people, then you're, you're potentially a victim of a tyrannical government and, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and then, of course, I, nobody can make an argument for an AK-47 semi, semi-automatic. Nobody can make an argument for... What Adam Lanza did in under five minutes, shooting 180 rounds in under five minutes and killing all those people.
2: You wouldn't think they'd be able to make an argument, but people sure try. People make the craziest arguments that that, 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 that should be okay, You know that you should be able to buy any kind of ammunition that you want.
1: Right. Or, like, and I people act like if, if, you, if you turn your head for one second, we're suddenly going to be Syria where the government is shooting at us and... Right. and, and, and totally, you know, repressing us, but that's, that's not the way it is. If that actually does happen, if, if we become a Syria, then yeah, go, go nuts, go get all the guns you want, but you don't need them right now.
0: Yeah. If the tea party gets in charge, I want to have a gun. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Ironically.
0: Um, as to that, I just have to tell you guys, all these weird rabbit holes I go down during the week when I listen to these podcasts, but, and one of them had me reading in cold blood, Truman Capote's great book. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and by the way, the clutters had guns in their house. And they didn't stop. That didn't stop Dick and Perry from from shooting them.
2: Right. Yeah. I guess back then you wouldn't you wouldn't really expect. I don't, know, I, don't remember, I don't know the circumstances. I should know because I, I did read it a long, long time ago. That I don't remember how they actually came into the house and whether the family they had just much.
0: walk right in. They, yeah, they right. Their, yeah, doors. So that, Nothing yeah. like that ever happened in that area of town. It was mm-hmm. like... Yeah, you,
2: it's get, not like you would have been expecting it. Yeah. Nothing had ever happened, not only in that area of town. Things didn't happen like that anywhere in the world. Right. You know, right. it was just a... Times were different back then. Oh,
1: God,
0: it's a scary, sad story, that one. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, there's that. Um, but there's also the, the Unabomber, this guy put out these essays, um, that he exchanged these letters with the Unabomber in prison called, um, technology. I forget what it's called, but it's about how technology is kind of ruining our lives. So I went and I read the, um, manifesto, the, the Unabomber's manifesto. And I tell you what. As kind of, you know, it was written off at the time as being just completely the ravings of a madman. Yes, he's mm. a madman. Yes, he's a terrorist. Yes, he killed people with his bombs, but read that manifesto sometime. And, you know, mm. I, I, I actually kind of plan on reading his uh, his letters because the guy is so smart. Like, he was, you know, he was a child prodigy who, like, graduated Harvard at 16 or something hideous like that, and Really, really smart. And, yes, it's true he's probably dip, tipped over into madness, has probably is, probably is, mad, crazy. But some of his thoughts about technology and what it's doing to people and how it's making us crazy are so dead on. Like he talks about how, you know, the, the different ways that it's it's disrupted our natural sense of, of power and well-being and autonomy um, that we have to be medicated for our stress. Uh it's just, you know, and that was in 1995 he was writing that, and things have completely tripled by now. But anyway, mm-hmm. I just brought it up as a way you guys should read that just for the hell of it. Read his manifesto
1: sometime. I be- read it after I saw your Facebook post. It's like his ideas are not wrong. It's it was what he did with those ideas that were wrong.
0: Right. Well, he wanted to it's hard to justify that. It's hard to say, you know, oh, he just set off those bombs to get people to listen to his manifesto because it, it defeated its own purpose. Nobody was ever going to listen to his manifesto if he killed people,
1: you know. He's but then imp- again, we wouldn't even know about it if he hadn't.
0: I know. It's the ironic thing, huh?
1: Mm.
2: Crazy. maybe maybe if he had had other means to get his manifesto out there uh, like the internet wasn't so big back then maybe if he he would have means to to have his uh, his opinions um be disseminated now that, that uh, besides the way that he chose
0: yeah what i found interesting was that they weren't like nutso like they they were very clearly thought out and written very mm-hmm. very yeah very but it clear. wasn't
1: just rantings
0: no it wasn't at all. It was very, very concise. In fact, he sounded a lot like George Carlin's routines.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, same ranting. It was bizarre. He's an interesting guy. But anyway, um, let's do our lists. Come on, guys, we got to do it. I don't actually okay. have one, but I'm going to Yeah, gonna we don't.
2: And I, 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 keep an eye on the time. We don't want to run out of recording time or whatever that. You have yeah, I, I know there's a just, limit sometimes.
0: It'll be an hour and a half, but we can just do this and then
2: be done. Okay, Craig, you go ahead.
1: Uh, gone with the wind, Casablanca, All About Eve the apartment, Lawrence of Arabia, The Godfather, The Godfather 2, Annie Hall, Schindler's List and No Country for Old Men. Mm. That's great. You know, you named
2: I have the same li- I have the same titles on my list and what I found when I was making my list is something that I've kind of thought for a while but I've never really uh, assembled it so I could see it in print to see how it was organized, but it seems to me that great movies, the really great movies come in clusters. That there are peaks when a when a, when a certain era of filmmaking reaches its peak, um, everything comes together for two or three years in a row, and then mm-hmm. there's a then there's a down period when it, when when uh, pe- when a new era starts and the they, and a new type of filmmaking begins. <laughs> so all this so I'm gonna my list is longer because I have my movies uh, grouped in clusters, and when I defined a cluster, if there are three terrific great masterpieces within a five-year period, three masterpieces within a five-year period to me constitutes a cluster. So I'll just say them, let's run through them real quickly. Gone with the Wind, Rebecca, and C- Casablanca, All About Eve, From Here to Eternity, and On the Waterfront, Bridge on the River Kwai, The Apartment, Lawrence of Arabia, The Godfather, The Godfather Two, and Annie Hall. Each of these three groups of movies were all made within five years of each other, Silence of the Lambs, Unforgiven, and Schindler's, Schindler's List, The Departed, No Country for Old Men, and The Hurt Locker. Yeah. So they, they come in these clusters like that. And then the sad thing about these clusters and af, is after the cluster, then there's usually a five to seven to ten year
1: period before the next cluster. Oh, shit, so there's like, shit, yeah, shit. So that's a sad thing. What's interesting which... about your, your godfather cluster is that I would even tack on to that Midnight Cowboy pattern, would... The French Connection and The Deer Hunter. Absolutely. I would yeah, too. really, the 70s are so thick.
2: It's almost like the clusters were piled up on top of each other. But I was trying to keep my list uh, pared down a little bit. You, you know? can't
0: keep out Midnight Cowboy. It just, right. It's such mm-hmm. a great movie. But um, I, I have to agree with all of those. But what I did notice from looking this over, though, we're talking about movies that are unequivocal that that are just they just had no equal when they won, and they mm-hmm. you know really deserve to win just beyond any reasonable doubt. Um, mm-hmm. Some years are really weird, like nineteen eighty five. Out of Africa, The Color Purple, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Pritzi's Honor, and Witness. (laughs) It's like, there are no good movies in that group.
2: I know. See, I have a gap between Annie Hall and and Silence of the Lambs. Between 1977 and 1991, there's no cluster in the 80s at all. I couldn't find any clusters.
0: I know. I'd have to go, if I had to pick one, I'd pick Terms of Endearment, probably, of that group. But what I do Mm -hmm. notice is that... um, You know, the the best, the great movies never win, of course, like um, A Place in the Sun or uh, Bonnie and Clyde, um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Citizen Kane. You know, these movies are are grapes of wrath. It's a wonderful life. I mean, these are really fantastic movies that never won. Um, That I find more notable almost than the ones that did win. You've been listening to episode 23 of Oscar Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And I was joined by Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Brian Adams, and me from awardsdaily.com. And the bumper music was Penny by Hanny L. Khatib and Old Yellow Moon, Emmylou Harris, and Rodney Crowell. Thanks for listening.